newly released best-selling book tells the origin story of arguably the most talented actor of her generation, Meryl Streep. Author, journalist, and biographer Michael Shulman on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thanks for listening. She has 19 Oscar nominations and three wins for movies such as Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, The Devil Wears Prada, The Iron Lady, just to name a few of Meryl Streep's truly iconic performances. Journalist Michael Shulman's new and very interesting book, Her Again, is on this month's Vanity Fair cover and is already a New York Times bestseller. It tells the origin story of Meryl Streep, a personal look into the early years that shaped her into the icon she is today. From her school years, where Streep was already burning with willpower and ambition, until she wins her first Oscar for the seminal film Kramer vs. Kramer. Her passionate but so tragic love story with the godfather Dog Day Afternoon actor John Cazell, and also about her Hollywood breakthrough and first Oscar win for Kramer vs. Kramer, where she played Joanna, a woman who leaves her marriage, husband, and young son for over a year and returns to a bitter custody battle. Putting it mildly, the co-stars Streep and Dustin Hoffman did not get along. Hoffman taking his method acting to such extremes that he even taunted Streep for the real-life recent death of her love, Cazelle. Michael Shulman, a writer at The New Yorker, conducted over 80 interviews for her again. He talked to Streep's friends and colleagues, researched articles, letters, and speeches. And talking about speeches, Meryl's Oscar and other acceptance speeches have always been amazing and of course served as the inspiration for the title of Mr. Shulman's book, Her Again. feeling I could hear half of America going, oh, no. Oh, come on, why her again, you know? But whatever. Mr. Shulman, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book, on being a New York Times bestseller, the Vanity Fair cover, I don't know what, everything. Oh, thanks. I want to start off with kind of a big question. Um, Meryl Streep is so often called one of the greatest actors of our time, whether she likes it or not, I'm not sure. But after your long research and study for this book, would you say you understand the key or the keys to her incredible talent in the field? That is a good question. I mean... It's it's something that's very hard to put your finger on. What is it that makes her so talented? I happen to think it's a kind of self-possession, is my best word for it, that she has complete control over every part of herself, you know, her voice, her gestures, her face, her, her body. You know, that's that's a very hard thing to have, as and that's what makes a great actor. And I think she really had that innately from the beginning. And a, a, an ability to, to sort of become other people, uh, mimic other people, and uh, and inhabit characters. For me, the arc of the book, the, the the story that I wanted to tell was, you know, here's someone who had an incredible innate ability to do something, but she had to learn how to apply that talent. You know, she had to 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 learn what she wanted 
and um, and to mature into it. And so that's what I found myself exploring. There's a quote in your book. Um, someone says she thought of the movie as work, not as a psychological minefield. She seems to have been able to sort of car- compartmentalize, or, or what would you say, between like what is is that true? Oh yeah. I mean, I think what's in, one thing that's just so uh, admirable that, about her is how she's managed to live a normal life. Hmm. You know, she was never in this for the sake of celebrity or fame. She's kind of irritated by those things. She's really an actor first. And all this celebrity stuff kind of comes with the territory, but um, you know she never she never moved to Hollywood except for a brief stint in the '90s uh, to draw up some work. She uh, you know she lives in Connecticut. She has four. She's raised four kids uh, with her husband, who's a sculptor. So I really think that that's sort of what I, you know I, I would say about that is that you know she's she's really. Uh, she's really grounded, you know. I think where some actors really give themselves over to the whole thing about fame and 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 even just uh, the idea of method acting of, of really sort of living living a kind of crazy uh, you know damaged life that you then turn into work. You know, she's never bought into that at all. Right. We're going to get back to a little of what the, her her experiences with Dustin Hoffman and other psychological minefields. But yeah. there's another quote about acting I really liked where she said, well, she herself said, um, women are better at acting than men. What did she mean by that? Or what does she mean by that? Yeah, that's so interesting. She said that in a, in a commencement speech a couple of years ago at, at Barnard College. And um, I think what she means is that from her perspective – I'm not a woman, so I can't attest to this, but I think I think what she means is that there's a kind of... I will of, help you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she's saying that that women have a kind of intuition for acting because of, of you know, the evolutionary need for women to uh, make themselves uh, safe around men and, and give men what they want because men have the power. I can't remember the exact rest of the quote, but she says it very well, the way that, you know, women have been... Um, trying to convince someone bigger than you that um, that you are what they think you are um, mm-hmm. for their own security. It's something that women have done for millennia. So pretending is kind of—I I mean, I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a little bit convoluted the way I'm saying it, but um, I think it, I think she's talking about a kind of intuition. And I think what's interesting about the men of that era of acting in the '70s, they were really. They, there was a real macho-ness to, to their acting, to the kind of method acting. Um, you know, aside from Dustin Hoffman, even, you know, the, the guy she was in The Deer Hunter with, uh, De Niro and Christopher Walken and John Savage, you know, when they were playing prisoners of war in Vietnam, they spent a month, you know, not showering. And, uh, you know, they, they really felt like they had to live the part. And they almost treated acting as an extreme sport. And you see that so often with like young macho male actors kind of, you know, starving themselves or, you know, uh, not washing, not wash, not bathing or, you know, like doing some extreme workout. And I think what she's saying is that women have this um, kind of psychological uh, intuition or background just from living life uh, that that requires a certain empathy. Isn't there an Olivier quote where he goes like, it's just act, it's not a method. Yeah, this is the, you know, this is a famous story with Dustin Hoffman. That may, It may be apocryphal, who knows, but, right. but Dustin Hoffman stayed up all night uh, on the set of Marathon Man because he had to look haggard. And, and, Laura, and Olivier looks at him and says, try acting, dear boy. 
Right. <laughs> I think that's more of what Meryl meant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but the, what does she say about um, her experience? Because um, your book really talks about the beginning of her career um, up until she wins her first call, um, Oscar after Kramer versus Kramer. So it's, it's incredibly interesting, sort of the beginning of her path. Um, what does she say about that era of acting in the 70s? What was that like for her in particular with these guys? Um. I think she had this way of sort of, I think she's sort of always been comfortable around men. You know, she grew up with two brothers and, uh, you know, for instance, Dustin Hoffman, despite their constant clashing on the set of Kramer versus Kramer, she would, she would say things like, oh, you know, I, I have two little brothers. I, you know, I, I know how people are always trying to push, see how far they can push. Um, so I think she had a kind of sense of humor about it um, and sort of rolled her eyes a little bit at the, the machismo. Yeah, because she seemed it seemed to sort of not uh, get at her really. It sort of rolled off her things that that maybe other women would have felt would have taken very harshly. Yeah, well, look at the story she tells over and over again about auditioning for King Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that is that is just something that she, uh, you know, I've seen her bring it up so much. Um, and when she was a young actress uh, in the mid '70s, she was called in for uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who was producing the remake of King Kong. Uh, she was being called in for the the part that went to Jessica Lange, and and he's there with his son and looks at her and says, oh, "Che brutta," you know, in Italian. So so ugly. Why do you why do you bring me this? And what they didn't know is, that, of course, Meryl Streep studied Italian at Vassar and answered them in Italian, shocking them, saying, oh, "Mi dispiace," you know, "I'm sorry." This is what you get. <laughs> and then she's turned out. I mean, I do think that story. It, I do think it upset her at the time, but after all these years, she sort of spins it into this really funny story of how she outsmarted these guys despite this the the real sexism and um uh you know the 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 kind of emphasis on 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 looks on beauty uh with with, with female actors um is something that she can now sort of make fun of and say well i i kind of like put these guys in their place were there women of that era that she looked up to or that that sort of mentored her i think jane fonda was a real uh not i don't know about mentor but but a, a kind of role model you know jane fonda had all jane fonda basically was the meryl streep of the 70s uh, as as meryl was in the 80s in the sense that she was really you know the female uh movie star, the kind of consummate female movie star who could who could drive a movie who could be at the center of a movie and the, and and Meryl's first movie Julia was a Jane Fonda vehicle a really political minded uh you know f- story about two women you haven't interviewed her you've interviewed i think 80 people or something i read for this book but you haven't but i understand that you wrote her a letter mm-hmm. um while you were writing this did she ever answer you she did she answered within a week so basically i, I was right at the beginning of my research and i was contacting her some of her old uh classmates from yale and i realized very quickly i mean because i never expected her to give me an interview because i just know how she works she's such a private person and i totally respect that um, and so as I was starting to contact people, I thought, well, you know, I don't want her to hear about this secondhand, what I'm doing. I, I should just tell her, you know, exactly what I'm interested, who I am, what I'm interested in, where I'm coming from, a little bit about my background and what the book is going to be like, uh, so that she doesn't get the wrong impression. Cause there's a million things, you know, I'm sure there's a million people in the world who come to her with a million things. Um, and I sort of wanted to have a, a 
kind of scholarly approach to it and, you know, talk about some of the theater history that she had been a part of, stuff like that. So I wrote to her and kind of explained all that. And she wrote back within a week through her publicist, and it was a really revealing note. Uh, it actually helped me a lot mm-hmm. figuring out who she was because, you know, it, it was sort of her pouring out all her anxieties about someone writing a book about her, which is very understandable. But in this, in specifically, uh, she she was uh, worried about being put on a pedestal even more than she is. Uh, she had one line that was like, um, leave me to the thing I love. I love acting. But to be called the greatest living actress, a designation not even my own mother would sanction, a <laughs> thing that in our sports mad world where we need a greatest this and a best that is the opposite of good or valuable or useful. It is a curse for a working actor. And what was funny about that is at the time I was, I was researching her early life and I was seeing how, you know, at, at Yale Drama School, for instance, she had risen to the, the top of the, the pack among her classmates to the point where it actually really isolated her because she was getting put in every single play. And she's always the, been the best, is what you're Yeah, thinking. it's like this. And then in high school, even, you know, she's, she, she really wanted to be this popular girl and cheerleader. And she was elected homecoming queen her senior year, which was kind of like, being named best actress of her high school. And uh, it's kind of like whatever whatever ecosystem she enters, she rises to the top. And then when she gets there, she feels a little bit trapped by it. And um, and that's sort of, there's a theme running throughout, the motif running throughout the book about like the homecoming float, that she always kind of ends up a little bit higher status than everyone else and kind of ends up resenting it, even though she got there, you know, with her own talent, with her own merit. Um, I want to go back to to there's a such a powerful part of the book. Um, you mentioned her husband, her her longtime love, Don Gummer, the the sculptor who she has four children with. But before that, she had a very powerful um, love story with actor John Cazale, Fredo in The Godfather, one of my favorite all time characters. Um, would you talk a little bit about about their love story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was one of the main reasons why I wanted to write this book about this time in her life, uh, because she did have this incredible life-changing experience with John Cazale. Um, so he, uh, he, he's incredible. He's just an, an, a great character. You know, he, he is this sort of odd looking guy who was very eccentric. You know, he had this childlike wonder about everything. People would talk about him staying up all night to tune his color TV. You know, he was sort of meticulous in this, in this childlike innocent way and, and, and a brilliant, brilliant actor who kind of never got noticed. You know, he was in five movies, his whole career, all were nominated for best picture and he was never nominated for anything. So he's classic kinda, American movie. I mean, it's the biggest. Yeah, the Dog Day Afternoon, important. The Godfather movies, The Conversation, and then with Merrill, he did um, The Deer Hunter. So anyway, he uh, was uh, he he was cast uh, across from her in 1976 in Shakespeare in the Park. They did Measure for Measure together, and they just immediately passionately fell in love you know it was this really hot and heavy like crazy relationship you know we call it now a showman you know the two lead actors of the play falling in love with each other but i think there is that kind of heat of people being drawn together through uh being on stage together and they were two actors who took who loved talking about acting who loved the craft of acting and so they lived together in john's loft in tribeca in uh downtown manhattan and uh only a year into their relationship, he was 
diagnosed with a, a terminal lung cancer, a really devastating diagnosis. And when that happened, Meryl threw everything aside to care for him and really drew on her own, you know, perseverance and, and, and inner strength to, you know, to, to, to nurse him, to bring him to, you know, to, to, to get him through this medical maze that they were going through and, um, and to put on this show of strength for him. Yeah, she didn't work for five months, or she, she didn't, she put everything out. Yeah, and this was really at the point when her career was taking off. You know, she was 28 or so year old actress that's when you you got the she should be striking when the iron is hot but you know she was she was retreating just to care for john uh, and then he he died of course very sadly and 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 um but the it must have been so special for her to have taken those months with him i seem to deem from your book yeah well one thing that she has said is that she, they were so close during that time that she actually was a, a bit blind to the fact that he was deteriorating. And so it was even more of a shock when he actually died. Right, right. And talk about the first time she met Dustin Hoffman, who becomes a character in her life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the very first time? Yes. Um, yeah, there's this story that Meryl has told um, that when she was in uh, drama school, she went into audition for a Broadway play Dustin was directing called All Over Town, I think. And um, she says that he tried to grab her breast during the audition and and and, and so, something like, I'm Dustin Burp Hoffman. Like, he, she really just didn't like him from the start. He, she just found him to be a kind of pig. So they they were always kind of on the wrong foot together. Because then they get this the incredible movie Kramer versus Kramer, which pretty much I mean still resonates today. Tell us a little bit about, about the relationship they had during that movie. Yeah, well, at heart it was really a clash of acting styles, as we were talking about earlier. Dustin was a hardcore method actor, and so he really felt you could draw on your own life, your own pain, your own, your own experiences. And that that was totally fair game to, you know, in the service of the movie. While Meryl doesn't work that way, she's, she's really all about empathy. Now, at the time they were doing Kramer vs. Kramer, um, Dustin was already a big, big star. You know, he'd been in The Graduate, and Midnight Cowboy, and all these things, um, all the president's men. And um, he was in his 40s at that point. And Meryl was really young and untested, un unknown, you know, unknown in terms of movies, basically. And um, so the, the second day of shooting is when things kind of started to go really haywire. Uh, because they were about to film the scene when Joanna leaves Ted Kramer at the very beginning. It's a really emotional scene. She's basically having a nervous breakdown. And uh, right before they went on to do this one take, Dustin slapped her across the cheek just to get her upset, to get her to cry, you know? And, um, and then they went on into the scene. You know, she, she didn't make a, a fuss about it, apparently, um, even though everyone on set was apparently horrified by the fact that he had done this. And, and then uh, they were doing this part where she's in the elevator and she tells him, I don't love you anymore and I'm not taking Billy. And this is the last you see of her for a while. And it's really devastating. And right before they were doing that, as they were shooting Meryl, Dustin started taunting her about the death of John Cazale, which had happened months earlier. This was really fresh. Which is just awful. <laughs> yeah, and the idea is that he, you know, and I, I think, I don't want people to misunderstand because it, it was never about cruelty for Dustin. It was all about his technique, which was not only to draw on his own pain and, and, and uh, you know, trauma 
to to help with the the scene, but to knew it to use what he knew about her life to sort of throw it back at her and make her a better actor in the scene. That was his idea. Yeah, but it was still pretty cruel. <laughs> yeah, but I think to most people it com- it comes off as as uh, sort of diabolical and not really fair. And uh, and also it's you know it, what he didn't know is that you know she was Meryl Streep even then. She may not have been famous yet, but she was an incredible talent who could deliver any emotion at any time, any place. And she kind of didn't need to be provoked into it. Do you know anything about how she feels about him today after those experiences? You know, I don't, I can't say for sure. I don't get the sense that they ever really um, became friends. I think, I think she sort of got through the movie uh, with complete professionalism, didn't, didn't, uh, you know, didn't try to to uh, to escalate the right. the tension, but I, I don't. You know, they've never worked together since. I, I I still get the sense that they kind of are wary of each other. There's a, the seminal court scene in the movie, which, as a mother myself who's been divorced, and everything, when she talks about the custody of her son, I understand that those are her own rewrites. What was it she changed in that speech that she gave there? Yeah, well, so the director and screenwriter Robert Benton is a he's a wonderful, really caring guy, and he was kind enough to speak to me for the book, and he talked about how he had written the speech. She's asked. Um, why are you seeking custody, basically? And this is someone who has been so demonized off camera that this is her one chance to really explain, you know, to make her case, to have her day in court. And um, and he had written a version of it, but he thought that it was a man trying to write in a woman's voice. And he wanted something a little more authentic. And so he asked Meryl, can you take a look at this? And so, and she brought in um, her own version. And... Uh, and it, it completely worked. Um, so what you see in the screen now is actually Merrill's uh, rewrite of the speech. You know, it has, it has you know, things from, it's basically the arc of, of what Benton had given her, but it has her touches. And I think, um, well, one thing that really struck Benton is that she has this line, I was his mommy for five years or something like that. And Ted took over that role for, for 18 months. And he hadn't used the word mommy, and I th- and that really struck him. Like it, it wouldn't have occurred to him for some reason. He used mother. Yeah. Billy's only seven years old. He needs me. I'm not saying he doesn't need his father, but I really believe he needs me more. I was his mommy for five and a half years, and Ted took over that role for 18 months. But I don't know how anybody can possibly believe that I have less of a stake in mothering that little boy than Mr. Kramer does. I'm his mother. I'm his mother. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think she brought up maybe a little bit more um, tenderness to it. When that movie came out, the people were incredibly upset at Joanna Kramer for leaving her family. I mean, not everyone, but many people saw it as sort of her fault and the father sacrificing everything. Do you, do you think people view the movie any differently today? 
Um, well, I mean, it, at the time, it, it was sort of, you know, it was seen in context of the the second wave feminist politics of that era. And some people saw it as a, a real backlash to, you know, the women's liberation movement, this whole era of, you know, consciousness raising groups and uh, Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem. It was it was the the original novel. As I I talked to the 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 guy who wrote the original novel, he really wrote it out of a sense of um, defensiveness against what he called the toxic rhetoric of feminists at the time. Uh, he really wanted to defend men against what he thought was you know feminists painting all all men all fathers with a broad brush. So the kind of backlash of feminism that is in the DNA of of the movie, of the story. And what Meryl did, I think, was really tip the balance a little bit more so that, you know, Joanna had her say and had, you know, had some kind of reasoning and wasn't just this scapegoat, basically, this this straw woman. Um, I think, you know, it's fair to see the movie as many people do, especially women, and, and feel like, you know, she didn't complete, completely succeed in, in flipping it and that Joanna does sort of have the deck stacked against her. I think that's a totally fair criticism of it. I do think, though, that the movie is so much richer and more interesting and more uh, emotionally just heartrending because you do see that at the core of Joanna, there is like a real person struggling and not just this woman who screws over her, you know, her husband and son, um, just to be narcissistic and seek out self-actualization and her purpose. And, you know, she's not a selfish person. She's a, a really fragile person who, um, you know, who, who is kind of trapped in a bad, a bad marriage. And, you know, I think with the passage of time, I think, um, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if, if, if that, had, if the passage of time has changed, you know, how, how we see that. Um, I mean, I just I think it's a fabulous movie, and I think um, I think just the strength of the acting and, and the and the writing and the filmmaking uh, certainly hold up. Finally, um, longtime listeners of my show know that I really enjoy following the Oscars and the politics of the Oscars, and I have an Oscar party, and I understand that you have like the mother of all Oscar parties, <laughs> um, which is a bit related to this book, uh, where you actually recreate the speeches. Am I correct? That is true. Um, so for the past six years or so, I have um, I've done this uh, show, this live show in New York called You Like Me, an evening of classic acceptance speeches. And we do it at Joe's Pub, which is part of the public theater in, in the East Village. And the whole, the whole idea, um, I started it with a friend of mine, and it's kind of grown and, and grown. And we do it every year the night before the Oscars, or the weekend of the Oscars. And we have uh, you know comedians and performance artists and various funny people we know um, perform acceptance speeches verbatim, you know, as text. So for instance, this past year we had, um, we had people do, uh, Susan Lucci's daytime Emmy award speech and, uh, Roberto Benigni's Oscar speech. And, uh, that is so much fun. I have to come. You know, Elaine Stritch's, Elaine Stritch's Emmy speech, which is so crazy. And I always play Meryl Streep and I always, I always have a different one because I love her acceptance speeches. Well, her acceptance speeches are just amazing. And she also has many. <laughs> well, this, so as, and as you know, the title of my book is from one of her acceptance speeches, her her Oscar for the Iron Lady, she got up and said, How is it? "What is that speech?" She <laughs> so great. She gets got up and she said, oh, "When they called my name, it was like I could hear half of America going, oh, come on, why her again?'" <laughs> but whatever. 
So, <laughs> so yeah, we have a lot of fun. We kind of, you know, everyone has everyone who performs in You Like Me has to. They have to really memorize. They have to. They have to thank everyone the person thanked. You know, they can't just make it up. It's it's like we treat it as as you know, like a Pinter monologue. You have to do, you have to do it exactly word for word. That's amazing. And and just do you have a final one um, besides the her again a favorite speech of hers? Oh well, another great one is her Emmy for Angels in America. This is such a great line. She gets up and she says, There are some days I myself think I'm overrated, but not today. (laughs) On that note, Michael, thank you so much for joining me and for continued success on the book. This was so great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Michael Shulman. His book, Her Again, check that out. It was just released. And even Meryl Streep has a new movie this summer. It's called Florence Foster Jenkins, and it's a biographical comedy drama directed by Stephen Frears. And thank you for listening. Send us feedback on the webpage, popcultureconfidential.com, or on Twitter, podpopculture. And this show was edited by Tom Hansen, Theme music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.